0: Too few to mention. It's all about more tax and more spending. If it wasn't less than 12 months since the last election, you'd call it an election budget. And you can certainly call it a Labor budget rather than a coalition one. But to analyze it, we've put together a great panel. Annette Beecher of TD Securities in Singapore, David Plank, the Chief Australian Economist at ANZ, and housing expert, Louis Christopher of SQM Research. David headed his post-budget reflections, little carrots, big sticks and plenty of steel. I started our discussion by asking him what he meant by the steel.
1: Well, the infrastructure, so they're going to be building a lot of railways, so that was just a a way of capturing, I suppose, the the combination of uh, some increases in spending, a couple of big tax increases and uh, a lot of money being devoted to infrastructure.
0: You've seen a lot of budgets down the years, I guess, and what's your overall impression of this one?
1: Well, I think it's uh, very much a tax and spend budget. It is trying to change the game on infrastructure, which I think is a, is a tick, as long as, I suppose, the the effort to get the infrastructure done doesn't lower the quality of that spending. But, um, you know, other other than that, I don't think there's a, much that can be said in terms of reform. And, uh, you know, I think there's a number of challenges or risks given the, the reliance, the complete reliance on higher revenue to close the gap with um, spending rather than uh, looking to... Uh, or keep reduced spending as a percentage of GDP. I mean, that may reflect the realities of the Senate, perhaps, and the fact that the the government didn't see much point in trying to put up stuff that it knew or or was highly likely to be rejected. So perhaps that's uh, the reality of of Parliament rather than the the real choice of the government. But I think from that perspective, they've essentially given up trying to um, reduce spending as a percentage
0: of GDP. You've said there was no vision or genuine reform, so you're quite critical in it.
2: I was less than impressed, uh, I guess. And I do take uh, note of, of David's political reality and I, I think they've chosen a political reality budget and in, in a lot of ways it was actually a Labor Party budget, certainly taxing the big end of town and giving the cash to the smaller end of town. So that, uh, that political reality is, is extremely disappointing from a reform point of view. There's absolutely nothing about broadening the tax base. In fact, the word tax I don't think even appears that levy seems to be the gentler way of uh, introducing new taxes. And I guess I'm very concerned that the revenue-raising expectations in the budget are are wholly unrealistic. Uh, As as David said, the, the share of spending the GDP is practically unmoved at 25%, and yet we're expected to believe this massive jump uh, in revenue-raising capabilities uh, as a share of GDP over the forward estimates. I'm not particularly convinced. I think we need broader tax measures. We need to be talking about you know, broadening the GST uh, and be a bit clearer about higher taxes rather than hoping the banks do the taxing for
0: them. Do you think there are any implications for monetary policy? And also, do you think that it potentially weakens our hold on the AAA credit rating?
2: Two good questions, and certainly that's what we've been you know, chewing over with, with everybody, is that it is down to the banks and how they pass on the costs to consumers. If it turns out to be you know, the standard variable rate is up by another 10 to 15 basis points, then that certainly jeopardises any sort of discussion about RBA rate hikes. But I get the impression that banks were rather blindsided by this decision and they will be having lots of discussions as to uh, how they will be passing on the cost. So we'll all be sitting tight uh, on that measure, but it does look like an implicit uh, tightening of monetary conditions. And secondly, I am concerned that, yes, there is an infrastructure package, but this is down to the states, and the, the states have been talking about infrastructure for some time, and that's certainly welcome, but what I see in this budget is taxing the productive areas of the economy and uh, and handing out welfare checks, which is effectively what the NDIS scheme is. I just don't see uh, a rock-solid uh, economy with that as the sort of chief driver of this budget. So so I think AAA is is certainly not going to be a, a risk maybe at this exact point in time, but um, I'm not convinced that the risk is entirely removed with this budget.
0: In fact, there are some lessons on the AAA from Canada, are there not?
2: There certainly is Uh, and I've uh, had the experience this morning of Moody's downgrading the Canadian banks uh, of which I work for one of them and a lot of the risks that Moody's has cited is uh, easily substitute the word Canada um, for Australia in terms of the vulnerabilities of the household sector and in turn vulnerabilities on the banking sector. I think the debt and deficits sort of embedded in this budget is also the case for your average household where I think owner occupied debt has not been addressed at all with these ASIC and APRA prudential measures for for what it's worth. APRA I think doesn't care about house prices they just care about the banks and to me I still think we need rate hikes uh, because I think the appetite for owner occupied debt has to cease.
1: Well I think with Canada of course it was the banks that were downgraded not the sovereign and I think um, what's interesting obviously the sovereign's got twice as much debt as Australia does, but there's no threat to its AAA rating and that reflects the external position and I think one of the, the positives for Australia in the last year, a couple of years, has been the improvement in the external position, which we think will be sustained. I mean, that remains to be seen, but that's a, that's a positive and acts, as, I think, as a significant offset to concerns on the, on the fiscal side. So th- that helps, uh, certainly from the way that S&P thinks about the rating. Our view is that the RBA is on hold for a couple of years anyway. I don't see any signs of inflation at the core level, really, for the next couple of years, so no need for the RBA to, to work. I think the market's reaction, though, as Annette was saying, is, is to think that this goes some way to substituting for a a rate hike given the likely pressure on uh, funding costs for the banks, uh, so potential out-of-cycle rate increases there, and, and also the Medicare levy itself, that the increase there that tax that will obviously act as a hit to household incomes and household sentiment if it goes through so both of those act as sort of constraints on that spending whereas the infrastructure was largely expected uh certainly for the next couple of years the much greater infrastructure in the out years i think was a positive surprise from a growth perspective again cautioning about how it's done and 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 the quality of that spending but Focusing on the next couple of years, the infrastructure that we got was largely expected. It was the surprise was on the on the tax side,
0: which is a good segue, I think, to um, housing affordability. And there was quite a few things in the budget on on that subject. Louis, what's your overall impression of the measures that they've taken in the budget?
3: Yes, well, the government's taken quite a few measures, and I was really quite surprised at some of the headlines yesterday. I was reading headlines suggesting that there was no impact upon negative gearing. Well. What the federal government's done is, sure, they didn't kill off negative gearing, but they viciously attacked it. What they did here was that they've uh, decided that one can no longer claim on plant and depreciation, plant and equipment depreciation, if you purchase an existing property. And just to give you an idea what that actually means, for uh, an investor who's getting themselves involved in negative gearing, depreciation is a key component to actually get that after-tax benefit plant and equipment depreciation normally represents between 50 to 100% of the total depreciation that, that investors can claim. So it is a significant component. I think it's actually enough here to slow the market down in the second half of 2017, just based on that negative gearing change alone. Of course, the government brought in other measures as well, The additional discount to capital gains tax if you uh, invest into an affordable property. The initiative is made on foreign investors where developers can no longer uh, offer any more than 50% of their product overseas. Uh, That was a change there as well. And then, of course, the additional superannuation contribution where through your super account, you can get tax concessions uh, with a view of saving up additional money to put down on a home, which I I think that's neither here nor there in terms of will that affect affordability, will that boost up prices? No, it won't do anything like that at all.
0: What about the downsizing incentive?
3: Yes, I think that's a very good initiative and I think it will free up some stock there so to be very clear, empty nesters, uh, seniors over 65 and over, if they sell their principal place of residence, they can put in six, six, up to $600,000 of that sale into their super account and that will not be affected tax-wise. So a good initiative. Uh, I've had some out there say, well, how many empty of stock is there and will that make a meaningful impact upon the market? Difficult to say for sure, but I think we will free up some stock, probably not enough to cause a, a downtrend in the market, but I, I think it will free up stock.
0: And it, do these measures on housing and what Louis's just been saying, make you feel any better about the household debt and the housing market situation?
2: I don't think so. I think we're really tinkering at the edges here. But unfortunately, we're back to political realities whereby I actually think the Labor Party, as much as it pains me to say it, probably has better policies when it comes to reducing the reliance on negative gearing. Personally, I think an easy win would be just to have a cap on deductions pick a number, $10,000, say, and then that way that preserves the proverbial mum and dad uh, investors and starts to tackle those that use negative gearing for a living or, or dare I say, even as a business. So I think that probably would be a a better message um, rather than just, you know, not allowing a few bits and pieces like travel rorts, which I think was probably squarely aimed at a couple of MPs that have been caught out on the taxpayer going to visit there investment properties on the Gold Coast, I believe, was a, a scandal of last year. Again, I think it's more about political realities than actually tackling the problem, and I don't think access to super is a particularly attractive way either of trying to reduce housing demand. All this government has done is prove that superannuation is no longer the tool that it used to be. No one can trust it, and uh, and I still think the, the overall tax mix and tax incentives still tells you to put all your money in your house and continue to collect your pension.
0: Yeah, I didn't even know about this travel thing. I wish I had. I would have bought a house on Daydream Island or something. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I just step
3: in there and say something, though? Plant and equipment depreciation is definitely material. This is the biggest attack upon negative gearing since the 1980s. Let's not underestimate it. It will definitely have an impact upon the market. Investors will be deterred. Lots of investors look at the overall negative gearing benefit, and, and effectively we're cutting the negative gearing benefit by half just on this one measure alone.
0: You reckon it's by half? Explain that a bit more detail.
3: Yeah, okay. So if you buy an existing property that is greater than 20 years old, all the deductibles there, you have, of course, the interest expense deductible. The other main deductible is depreciation. On what? On plants and equipment and the building itself. And, of course, furnishings as well. The plant and equipment, if you cannot claim on the building, which you generally can't over 20 years old, uh, then you've just got plant and equipment depreciation.
0: Which is what? Stove and fridge and stuff?
3: Oh, it can be a lot more than that. It can be the air conditioning, it can be the ducts. There's about 50 different things. When you look at depreciation schedule, and this is the reason why a key component of the quantity surveyors were up in arms yesterday about this, Basically, it can represent between 50 to 100% of what you can depreciate. So it is a major component. You were
0: going to say, Annette?
2: I think given the difference between what you just said, Alan, and what Louis is saying is it still boils down to the, uh, the accountancy profession, uh, we'll be fully employed while we figure out uh, what's deductible and what's not.
0: Indeed. David, how's the market reacting, both locally and internationally? Oh, I don't think the budget has had that
1: much impact. I mean, the front end rallied a little bit on the on the news. Um, I think reflecting the the fact that the surprises were in terms of the um, the taxes and the implications that might have for growth, sort of a de facto partial rate hikes. So the front end rallied a little bit on that. But but budgets haven't been a, a market driver for essentially as long as I can remember. Essentially, basically, and I think that was the same today. Um, you know, a lot of the the infrastructure stuff had been leaked, uh, so we knew a lot about that. Um, and I actually think that's appropriate. I think we should, we need to get away from budgets being seen as a major um, economic event where everything stops to get the budget done, and that's kind of resets the whole economic debate. I think that's that's wrong. Budgets haven't been a very effective way of doing that for a long time. So I think we need to get away from budgets being seen as the be all and end all for the government's fiscal or
0: um, economic uh, agenda and do it a different way. And Ed, I know that equities aren't your sort of daily bread and butter, but it was interesting that the bank share prices got whacked on the day ahead of the budget coming out. That wasn't supposed to have been leaked about the bank tax.
2: That was an interesting one, um, and I saw that I think uh, Hinch, as a senator, wants an inquiry into this leak. Um, I mean, my caveat is I do hold bank stocks, so uh, I did notice the the fall and the fact that it was a bit of a buy-the-rumour-sell-the-fact issue in that bank stocks fell, and then they've managed to find a flaw since then. But I think it was the big surprise of the budget. I mean, as David just said, it hasn't actually been a currency or bond or RBA significant event um, since the Paul Keating days, uh, I think, because some of us go back that far. But the fact that the banks were were noted as the heavy lifter on the revenue front, that was unexpected. And I was actually... uh, (laughs) Conducting an interview on CNBC and someone asked one of the other panellists, you know, what do you think of the bank levy? And he basically said, I don't know anything about it, which just shows how quickly it went from a rumour to a fact, to the banks being sold, to the budget being leaked, I think is in a matter of four or five hours. Um, So I think something does need to be examined. I think that is a big leak and I think should be investigated.
0: It certainly was. and, And in fact, it was noticeable that the bank share prices fell at the opening So it seems to have, the leak happened before the opening, possibly overnight. It wasn't during the course of the day, and it certainly didn't come out of the lock-up, which started at 1.30. Yeah, I
2: think someone needs to look closely at the timeline on that one.
0: Louis, obviously the housing construction has helped the transition of the Australian economy broadly out of the collapse of the mining boom. And firstly, do you think in general that construction boost is finished? And is there anything in the budget that will likely prolong it?
3: On our numbers, construction and completions will peak uh, early next year. When you consider the recent downtrend, and it seems to be quite a sustainable downtrend now in building approvals, that, that's yet more evidence that we will see a peak next year. And just recall that uh, this time last year, the Reserve Bank and other bodies were quite concerned of an oversupply in the market, particularly to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane markets. Well, As it's turned out, the only oversupply we're really seeing is in Brisbane. Uh, Sydney and Melbourne are recording vacancy rates of two to under 2%. Uh, Melbourne's actually on a downtrend with vacancy rates, and this has been driven predominantly by larger than expected population growth rates. Melbourne's been rising by 2.4% per annum. That's the size or greater than the size of the MCG now each and every year. Sydney's rising by 95,000 people a year. I think it's actually concerning that now that construction is going to peak, it does have some negative ramifications for the economy. As you've rightly said, it's been one of the buffers in the economy while we've had a mining downturn. Overall, when I look at this budget, I think it's actually a little bit of a dampener on property. And so we could have an issue with rents later in 2018, where rents will accelerate well and truly above the CPI.
0: David, obviously with the housing construction boom potentially coming to an end, a lot of people have been looking for what's next in terms of the transition of the economy and a lot of focus has been on infrastructure for that. Do you think that what we've got in the budget will actually provide that kind of underpinning for the economy as the construction, the residential construction boom comes to an end?
1: Well, I think it's important to take into account the fact that the mining downturn is almost over, so the housing construction phase and the fact that it won't be adding to GDP probably by the end of this year actually happens to coincide with essentially the end of the the mining downturn. So in a way the transition's over. So I think that the timing works out pretty well. Um, So I don't think we need housing to fill the gap from mining because there won't be any gap from mining to fill by the end of this year. Infrastructure will be important. There is a massive uh, step up in infrastructure over the next couple of years and given just the usual way these timelines work, I suspect the peak in infrastructure will be a few years further out than is currently in the numbers because some of what's currently in the numbers will get delayed and pushed out further. So that will act as a source of growth for a couple of years. at least you know we'll get continued growth out of uh, service sector, we'll get continued growth out of exports. so there's you know there's lots of uh, areas. For me, I'm not that worried about growth, I think growth will be in the two and a half to three percent range for the next couple of years, most likely, absent a global downturn. The one risk that does worry me is more on the consumer side, where clearly uh, consumers, certainly in the first quarter of this year, have decided to pull back in spending quite hard. Uh, It looks like the savings rate is probably heading higher. So um, that creates a a downside risk for most people's forecasts. Certainly the, the Treasury's forecasts have the savings rate continuing to fall, and it looks like certainly on our estimate and our modelling that the household saving rate uh, jumped in Q1 and probably uh, it probably won't continue to rise, but I think the, the fall in the household savings rate is over. So if income growth remains weak, which seems reasonable to expect for the rest of this year at least, then I think there's some downside risks on uh, household consumption. So that's probably, in my mind, where the the major downside risks to the economy are at the moment, rather than on housing, mining, infrastructure.
0: Annette, do you agree with that in terms of the risks? Where, where do you see the downside risks and, and do you go along with the forecast in the budget?
2: I certainly see downside risks probably more on the nominal side. Some of the wage assumptions were probably a little on the heroic side, uh, I think. I think the global pressure on wages will continue to be to the downside uh, and that this is a short-term and, and medium-term proposition. So it's that's about the only task I really take with the budget on that side. But other than that, I'm generally with uh, with David on that front. I mean, growth being 25 to 3%, uh, half of that is still the consumer adding probably one5 Percentage points to GDP in, in annual terms. That's well below trend and expected to stay well below trend. I think debt-saturated consumers will will just be continuing to consume sort of more modestly compared with past cycles. The housing cycle has been adding half a percent to GDP in the last couple of years, and that will whittle away um, to zero. So it will actually be down to this infrastructure spend. There was implications in the budget that some infrastructure. Projects appear to be shovel-ready. I'm probably a little sceptical on that. Australia doesn't do anything without a couple of papers and a couple of changes of government and a couple of consults. So it would be nice if infrastructure steps in uh, immediately to make up the difference. I guess we may have a, a small patch whereby housing stops contributing to growth and infrastructure is yet to step in and breach the gap. So that leaves us probably at two and a half briefly rather than three. But net-net, I didn't really have any any issues with the fact that we're likely to muddle along for a lot longer. I don't see any particular downside risk. I just see a muddle-along risk.
0: Just on the infrastructure, I thought the proposal to buy the states, buy Victoria and New South Wales out of Snowy Hydro, the 87% that they own, was clever, because that's infrastructure money that goes straight to the states where it belongs.
2: Absolutely, and I think the federal government should actually trim back its interference with the state, particularly on education policy. I think that was something that was started with Gillard because we all know how passionate Gillard was about education. I think the Feds should go back to doing what they do best, which is you know national security and, and things of national importance, rather than trying to tell the states where to uh, allocate their funds when it comes to infrastructure and, and education. But I think that's a bit of a, a pie-in-the-sky uh, wish
3: list from my side.
0: Louis, just finally, do you think that the decline in consumption and the increase in the savings rate is tied to the housing cycle?
3: I think there is some relationship there for sure. Uh, When you have very high private debt levels, uh, that reduces uh, your disposable income. Uh, The servicing rates have been rising uh, in our view uh, and uh, may well in part explain why we've been having uh, worse than expected uh, retail results coming through.
0: Thanks very much, everybody. It's been uh, fantastic and really interesting. I really appreciate your giving us that that time this morning. Pleasure. Thank you. Our post-budget panel today was Annette Beecher of TD Securities in Singapore, David Plank of ANZ Bank and Louis Christopher of SQM Research. Thanks, as always, to my constant team and thanks to ISM Studios for the music. I'll see you in your inbox on Saturday morning.